Hey everybody, welcome to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm Kerry Parker, and happy Labor Day to all of the U.S. listeners. I hope you're having a safe, fun weekend. Actually, by the time you hear this, most of it will be gone, but it will probably be Labor Day, so hopefully you're having a good time. Uh, I've got a news show for you. We've had a couple uh, interviews in a row, and so there's plenty to catch up on, though I'm going to focus on just a, a few big stories uh, because there's a lot to say about these things, so I kind of need to get into some details um, and kind of give you a, my take on, on what some of these things actually mean. So uh, we're going to talk a little bit about an iPhone hack that is pretty interesting, though not terribly widespread, uh, and has been long since fixed, but it's... Um, it was pretty severe, and uh, we'll talk about that and what, the, what all the implications of that are. We're going to talk about this new uh, Facebook tool that they have reluctantly provided um, that's not even available yet to allow you to supposedly clear your, you know, uh, what do they call our off-Facebook history, I think, is, you know, because Facebook tracks you whether or not you're on Facebook or not. And even if you don't have an account, they're tracking you <laughs> or trying to track you, so... Um, we'll, we'll talk about that and what that really means. We'll talk about how Kaspersky antivirus software, uh, was found to be injecting unique IDs into every one of your web pages and why that matters. And we'll talk about how that relates to some mass surveillance going on in Kazakhstan, believe it or not. Uh, and then we're going to finish up with a talk about choosing a VPN provider, a virtual private network provider. Um, we've discussed this on the show before, but there's a new study out that I want to kind of highlight and kind of walk through why you should use one, why they matter, and why this new review, this exhaustive review of several providers is better than all the other ones I've ever seen. So plenty to talk about. And let's not waste any time. Let's uh, let's get into the news. <laughs> First up, there was a story, and uh, these kind of things, if you saw them, kind of get these kind of crazy headlines like, oh my God, everyone's iPhones were vulnerable for years, uh, complete takeover of your device, yada, yada, yada. Um, and of course, the you know the devil's in the de details. It's not quite as bad as it made it sound. Um, the hacks were very good and very complete, uh, but there were some mitigating factors there, and the chances that you personally were affected were pretty slim. Uh, so let me just read this article here from the Naked Security blog, uh, which is, of course, Sophos's blog, Sophos, the antivirus software maker. Um, they've got it's a really good blog, uh, uh, as I've mentioned many times. So, uh, and it's got a nice little level of snark to it too. So, <laughs> well, uh, let me let me read you from this article. And this is a little bit long. I apologize, but uh, I think it's important. So. It says, imagine that an iPhone could be turned into a surveillance tool capable of sending hackers a record of its owner's entire digital life, including their location in real time, all their emails, chats, contacts, photos, and saved passwords. A showstopper of a compromise. And yet, according to Google Project Zero researcher Ian Beer, this is exactly what's been happening to thousands of iPhone users for more than two years. It's a revelation that has had some commentators cracking open the hyperbole emergency glass. So let's cover the important facts of the story before jumping to any alarming conclusions. And that's one of the reasons I like this blog. They're, they're, they're good and even-handed. So anyway, back to the article. It says, the story starts with a discovery by Google's threat analysis group, TAG. And it quotes them saying, we discovered a small collection of hacked websites. The hacked sites were being used in indiscriminate watering hole attacks against their visitors using iPhone Zero Day. Okay, let me explain a couple of those terms. So uh, a watering hole attack is basically when this is like a nation state actor or maybe a, a hacker group that is trying to target a certain type of user 
Um, and what they will do is they will go to where those users go. In other words, like the old watering hole, uh, you know, in the, in the, uh, African desert or whatever, you know, where all the animals come to drink and then they go, right? So they, they go where the, where the, where their targets go. And then the website, they pick a website that they think or know perhaps, uh, that the people they're targeting tend to frequent. And so they'll find these websites and they'll hack the websites and leave malware there so that anybody who goes to the website will be infected, even though they're only looking for, uh, certain groups of people or certain people that they know frequent these websites. You know, so this is like, again, probably a nation state, um, or some sort of a hacker group looking for a particular demographic or certain people that go to certain companies or whatever. Unfortunately, the articles don't list the websites, which really kind of ticks me off. Um, so I, I can't even tell you if you've been to this site, then you're in trouble. But anyways, you'll see, as we go through the article, uh, uh, you're probably fine now. So, um, anyway, let me continue with the article. Oh, I'm sorry. There was one more term I was going to uh, talk about, and that was the zero day. We've talked about that before, but a zero day is basically a hack for which the the software maker f- that has the bug is unaware, uh, and it's already out in the wild, and someone else has found it, and so it's a zero day. It's day zero. It's it's the time when they find out about it. It's already out there, and they need to act quickly. So zero days are basically unpublished bugs. The hackers may know about them, but uh, the people who could fix those bugs don't know about them. That's where the zero day comes in. All right, so back to the article. The first hint that something was up came on February 7th when Apple released an urgent out-of-band update that took iOS to version 12.1.4. Affecting iOS 10, 11, and 12, seven of these bugs related to the Safari browser, five to the iOS kernel, which is the operating system basically for iOS, the low-level operating system, plus two sandbox escapes. Uh, and that's the kind of thing where your, your browser is supposed to sandbox what you do. And it's supposed to keep malware from jumping out of the browser space into your files and whatnot on your computer or your phone. So a sandbox escape is something that circumvents that protection. Most of these have been patched over time, but the two reported to Apple above were zero days, hence the company's rush to get 12.1.4 out only days after Google told them about the issue. Google isolated five unique exploit chains, Campaigns run over time using different combinations of flaws, one of which was dated back to 2016. Now, an exploit chain is kind of like it sounds. It's finding a chain of exploits. So, you know, maybe this bug gets you this far, and then I then I use this other bug to get me a little bit further, and then I use this other bug to take me one step further, and eventually I'd use a, enough of these together that I get the access that I'm looking for. So that's an exploit chain. And then, so... This guy named Beer says there was no target discrimination. Simply visiting the hacked site was enough for the exploit server to attack your device. And if it was successful, install a monitoring implant. We estimate that these sites receive thousands of visitors per week. Although, and that's the end of the quote, although this group of campaigns has been disrupted, Beer thinks that there are, quote, almost certainly others that are yet to be seen, unquote. And the article goes on to say, Victims' iPhones would have had malware installed in the form of a powerful monitoring implant capable of stealing chat messages, including WhatsApp, Telegram, and iMessage, which are normally encrypted, photos, tracking users' locations in real time, and even accessing the keychain password store. If you set out to design a compromise of a mobile device, it'd be hard to imagine a more complete one than this, excepting that this campaign was eventually detected. Two caveats to hold on to for encouragement. For attackers to take control of iPhones, they still had to tempt victims to the specific websites. And of course, they don't say what those websites are, which is not terribly helpful. 
The malware installed on the phones via the exploit chain stopped working when the users rebooted their phones, in which case the attackers would have had to start infection all over again. Okay, so the article says more, but I'll stop there. So basically, if you have gone to any of these websites, and again, we don't know what they are. Hopefully, they'll release these some point soon. My guess is because they're saying hundreds of thousands of iPhones over two years, that's really not that many. <laughs> I think there's like, I think there's two billion iPhones or something on the planet. So, you know, uh, the chances that you were infected are probably slim. Nevertheless, it'd be nice to know what those websites are so that you know if you've ever gone to them, you might be infected. Uh, but of course, the other thing is this was fixed in February. So as long as you're keeping your iPhone up to date, you're fine. Uh, so one thing I would like to call out is it's talking about 12.1.4. Don't confuse that with the current update that might be waiting on your phone right now, which is 12.4.1. 12.1.4 was released back in February, a long time ago. So chances are very good. You've already got that patch installed and you're safe. And if you've rebooted your iPhone at any point since February, which I hope you have, uh, whenever you rebooted your phone, any of these exploits would have been removed. Now, of course, for some reason, if you'd gone to these sites and these things were installed, they still may have siphoned off a lot of important information. But um, uh, at this point, we don't know. And and that's one thing I really like to, I really wish we could do as a little soapbox here. When these exploits are found, it's great that they're fixed. It's great they let them know that we need to download fixes and whatever. But I would really like to know, if possible, whether or not I personally was infected. Um, you know, as part of the software update that installs the patch, if there's a software update they can install that would examine the system before the update to see if I was infected and then let me know, that would be really nice. I mean, there's basically, we need a feedback loop here. I mean, for me to change my behavior, for me to understand, oh, I shouldn't have done that, or oh, that's where I screwed up, you know, to, to be able to improve from, and learn from mistakes, you know, we need to know that we made them. It's not enough to just kind of blindly say, okay, well, don't worry about it. If uh, if you were infected, you're not now. You know, I, I still want to know, right? So anyway, uh, that's my little personal rant on that. Hopefully, maybe someday uh, we'll add that notification as well when these things get fixed. All right, next up, Facebook has finally, after many months, much longer than we assumed, has released released this tool that they say allows you to clear your Facebook data sharing history. Uh, but as we read this article from Naked Security, we'll find out that that is not really the case, and I'm sure that you will not be shocked by that. So another article from Naked Security, and this has been kind of, I kind of pieced together parts of this, because again, it was a long article, and, and I'm only reading you part of it, so... so. Uh, anyway, I'll start here and it says privacy advocates, members of Congress and users told Facebook that we wanted more than the ability to see what data it has on us. We wanted a clear history button. We wanted the ability to wipe out the data that Facebook has on us, to nuke it, to kingdom come. We wanted this many moons ago, and that's kind of sort of what Facebook promised us in May 2018 that we'd be getting within, quote unquote, a few months. Well, it's 15 months later, and we're finally getting what Facebook promised. Not the ability to nuke all of that tracking data to Kingdom Come, which it never actually intended to create, but rather the ability to quote-unquote disconnect that data from an individual user's account. The browsing history the data collects on us when we visit other sites will live on, as it won't be deleted from Facebook servers. As privacy experts have pointed out, you won't be able to delete that data, but you will be getting new ways to control it. Facebook announced the new set of tools, what it's calling off-Facebook activity, and which includes the clear history feature on Tuesday. And this would have been last Tuesday. 
Facebook Chief Privacy Officer of Policy, Aaron Egan, and Director of Product Management, David Bazer, Besser, Bazer, Bazer, said in a Facebook newsroom post that the new tool should help to shed light on all the third-party apps, sites, services, and ad platforms that track our web activity via Facebook's various trackers. Those trackers include Facebook Pixel, a tiny but powerful snippet of code embedded on many third-party sites that Facebook has lauded as a clever way to serve targeted ads to people, including non-members, i.e. people that aren't even on Facebook. But yeah, so just FYI, Facebook <laughs> Facebook is also an advertising company, and they don't really care if you're a Facebook user or not. They prefer you would be one, but they're tracking everybody anyway, and they're still building up dossiers on everybody they can and selling that information to advertisers. Uh, back to the article, it says, Another tool in Facebook's tracking arsenal is Login with Facebook, which many apps and services use instead of creating their own login tools. And I've talked about that many times. Whenever you go to a website that says, Create an account or Login with Facebook or Login with Google, uh, whenever you pick Login with Facebook or Login with Google, you're basically giving Facebook and Google, or Google, the ability to know everything you do on that website. Uh, it sets up a relationship between those companies. Um, so just assume, well, you could assume they're tracking you anyway, but that's just one more way they can track you. All right, back to the article. It says, Off Facebook activity lets users see a summary of the apps and websites that track you online and report back to Facebook. Using the clear history tool, you can disconnect that data from your Facebook account. Doing so will mean that the company will no longer be able to use that information for targeted ads, including on its other products such as Instagram and Messenger. Justin Brookman, Consumer Reports Director of Privacy and Technology Policy, is one of the experts Facebook consulted about the tools as it was developing them over the past year. He said that the new tools aren't perfect, but at least they're a step in the right direction, as in a step away from third-party tracking, which he called the original sin of the web. And he is quoted here saying, There are some shortcomings here, but giving the consumers the ability to separate that tracking from their real names is a major step in the right direction. Uh, the article says, what would have made this more a real leap instead of a baby step, giving users the ability to wipe that slate clean. And again, they quote Brookman saying, you should be able to delete this data entirely and stop Facebook from collecting it in the first place, which is why there's still plenty of room and plenty of reason for regulators and lawmakers to take action, he said. Consumer Reports also spoke with Casey Oppenheim, a co-founder of data security firm Disconnect, who had a particularly salient comment, namely, don't rely on the fox in the hen house to quote-unquote, disconnect from the hens. It's our data, and it's on all of us to protect it. But how many of us ever bother to change our settings? Facebook isn't making any changes to what it does with your information by default, and that's a big deal. Most people don't log into Facebook just to monkey around with their settings. Each additional step users have to take makes it less likely that they'll actually use these tools. And I'll stop there to say, yes, that's exactly what we talked about, I think, on the last news show, and that's the tyranny of the default. Opt out is not viable anymore. They're just way, way, way too many settings. There's way too many ways to be fooled um, into accepting policies and settings that are really not to your benefit. So anyway, I agree with that completely. This is just one more thing that you have to go out of your way to do, which you should be able to, you know, by default, it should be this way and you should be opt in, not opt out. But of course, they'll never do that with that regulation. So anyway, so the article goes on what to do. Not much unless you're in Ireland, South Korea, or France. Facebook is gradually introducing off-Facebook activity in those countries and plans to keep rolling it out everywhere over the coming months to help ensure it's working reliably for everyone. That was a quote from Facebook. So anyway, this tool, while they've announced it, for some reason is only available first in Ireland, South Korea, and Spain. And don't get your hopes up because after this article came out, another article um, came out um, that said that basically a U.S. judge has ordered Facebook... Um, 
to halt the planned rollout of this tool for fear that it may result in loss of evidence in a criminal case. And there's a quote here. It says, on Thursday, Texas District Court Judge Tanya Garrison temporarily blocked the rollout of Facebook's off-Facebook activity feature in the U.S. per the request of an attorney for a woman suing the social network for benefiting from her sexual exploitation on the platform. The woman's attorneys want Facebook to provide details of any known browsing history of an alleged pimp which it wouldn't be able to provide if the person concerned was able to use the upcoming tool. All right. So anyway, it's a false start. And honestly, it doesn't go anywhere near what we actually needed to do. Uh, like that other guy said, yeah, okay. It's better than nothing. Um, I, I don't have a Facebook any account anymore. I can't even use it. So I would honestly be really interested to see, and we'll probably get see articles on this one when it finally does come out, uh, what it shows you. Uh, I'd be really interested to see how much it exposes things that people, didn't know. So whenever, whenever that does come out, I will probably uh, talk about this again and urge you to go check that out just to see what data is there. It's good to at least understand what they have on you. All right, next up, uh, this is an article about Kaspersky antivirus software, though, honestly, this really could be any antivirus. I'm not, you know, they did this, but any of, any of the AV companies could have been doing this. And as far as we know are, but anyway, uh, let me read this article from Ars Technica. Uh, about a rather disturbing finding in the Kaspersky antivirus software. Antivirus software is something that can help people be safer and more private on the internet, but its protections can cut both ways. A case in point, for almost four years, AV products from Kaspersky Lab injected a unique identifier into the HTML of every website a user visited, making it possible for sites to identify people even when using incognito mode or when they switched between Chrome, Firefox, or Edge, or for that matter, for even if they're using a VPN, which we're going to talk about later. The identifier, as reported Thursday by CT Magazine, and it's actually C apostrophe T, I don't know how you pronounce that, so I'm just going to say CT. Uh, CT Magazine, was part of a blob of JavaScript Kaspersky products injected into every page of user visited. The JavaScript, uh, by the way, JavaScript is just kind of a computer language that is that runs inside of a web page. Uh, so it lets them do fancy things. JavaScript is used all over the place today. Almost every web page you go to today has got JavaScript in it doing several things. Uh, so anyway, this AV product injected a little bit more JavaScript in there to do what I'm about to tell you about. The JavaScript was designed to, among other things, present a green icon that corresponded to safe links returned in search results. CT reporter Ronald Eichenberg found something unsettling about the JavaScript injected by the Kaspersky AV product installed on his test computer. The tag, and it's a long string of numbers, was unique to his machine and was injected into every single page he visited. It didn't matter if he used Chrome, Firefox, Edge, or Opera, or whether he turned on incognito browsing. The identifier acted as a unique serial number that website operators could use to track him. Kaspersky stopped sending the identifier in June after Eichenberg privately Eichenberg privately reported this behavior to the AV company. The identifier was introduced in the fall of 2015. That meant that for close to four years, all consumer versions of Kaspersky software for Windows, including the free version, Kaspersky Internet Security, and Kaspersky Total Security, silently branded users with a unique identifier. Eichenberg wrote, quote, in other words, any website can read the user's Kaspersky ID and use it for tracking. If the same universally unique identifier comes back or appears on another website of the same operator, they can see that the same computer is being used. If this assumption is correct, 
Kaspersky has created a dangerous tracking mechanism that makes tracking cookies look old. In that case, websites can track Kaspersky users even if they switch to a different browser. Worse yet, the super tracking can even overcome the browser's incognito mode. And as I said, it would also include uh, for VPNs as well. The larger point of this is that, as noted earlier, AV protection, whether from Kaspersky or anyone else, can be double-edged. Yes, it may save someone who clicks re- recklessly on links or attachments, but it can also increase attack surface or add behaviors that many security experts argue are unsafe. Completely unmentioned in the CT article is the installation of a self-signed digital certificate that many AV products use to inspect HTTPS-protected traffic. This sits wrong with many people who say no application should tamper with TLS traffic. Okay, so I need to really unpack that last one, but it's very important. So what they're saying is, when you browse using HTTPS, that last S is for secure, it uses under the cover encryption technology called TLS, Transport Layer Security. That's a bunch of fancy terms, but what that basically means is that all the data, and the web pages, the forms you fill out, uh, the videos you watch, etc. Everything you do on a website, between everything between you and that website is protected. It's encrypted. Nobody, including your internet service provider, the CIA, the FBI, anybody, any hackers, nobody can see what is the contents of that traffic. They may know that you've gone to that site, but they can't figure out what it is, the, the data that's going back and forth. And that's crucial. So what? <laughs> here's the thing, though. Antivirus products, somewhere along the line, got this brilliant idea that, hey, you know, we can't properly protect you if we can't tell everything you're doing. Does that sound familiar? Uh, Sort of like maybe law enforcement and intelligence agencies saying we're going dark? Well, it's the same argument. So, but in this case, you're installing software from them and you're agreeing to all the stupid terms and conditions and whatever when you install it and giving it permission to do so. And what... Uh, Many of these AV software products have done with that permission is they have installed what's called a root certificate uh, into your certificate storage on your device. And what that means is it's kind of like the analogy would kind of be like installing a fake, well, installing an ID machine on your device. And I I was about to say fake ID, but it's really not. I mean, if, if, if you're a, a certificate authority, if you're a CA, a root CA, and you're in the you're installed on your computer, that basically tells your computer, okay, any certificates issued by or vouched for by this root certificate, I'm gonna I'm gonna trust because you installed it, you went into the trouble of installing this root root CA, and if you say you trust that, well, then I trust. Then that that means that I can trust any website that that root CA says is good. And here's why they do that. So they've installed this thing, which basically lets them mint duplicate certificates for popular websites like Google, Facebook, actually any website they want. Every one of those websites created a very secure special certificate signed by some other root certificate authority that, you know, like VeriSign or something that every that, that is well known. They, had, they went to the trouble of basically proving their identity, and then they put this on their website. And then when you go to visit that website with HTTPS, you can verify with that certificate that who you're talking to, or at least you can verify that your communications are encrypted. But in this sense, you're also kind of verifying who it is you're talking to. What the AV software is doing in this case is they are being a man in the middle because they can now mint 
perfectly valid certificates for any website on the planet, including Google and Facebook, even though they aren't Google and Facebook. So what Kaspersky is doing here and a lot of the other AV software products are doing is they are inserting themselves into this previously opaque communication channel so that they can protect you. So as you're visiting these sites, and let's say you do a Google search or some other search and some link comes up, before you can click on that link, they can scan the page, look at that link and say, hmm, I know that link is not good. I'm going to put a little a little thing on the web page, a little, a little red something or other probably, that says Kaspersky believes this link is unsafe. That's what that little bit of JavaScript is doing. But the only way that JavaScript even works is because they were allowed to break in to the communications, the encrypted communications between you and these websites so that they could scan everything you're seeing on that web browser and then take action. So to me, this is overzealous. And this is one of the reasons I do not like AV software, um, modern AV software. And there's there should be you know settings somewhere where you can turn off. They, they probably all have different marketing names for it, but it's like probably live, you know, live protection or web browsing protection, or who knows what they call it. But what that means is, is when you install and allow that you're installing this root certificate, and that basically allows these AV software companies to see everything you do on the web. The Winston privacy guy that we talked to a while back, and by the way, I haven't gotten my Winston privacy box yet. I was supposed to get it in October, uh, I think is when I'm due to get it, um, said that he knows and he couldn't name names, but he knows of some AV software vendors who are selling that data because now they have, they could see everything you're doing. So why not monetize that data? Oh, brother. So it's a big, big, big can of worms. And, and in this case, what Kaspersky was doing is while they were trying to protect you for some unknown reason, well, probably for their own marketing reasons, they injected a unique identifier into every web page you visited and with JavaScript, other companies could read that identifier and then identify you. So they've stopped doing this, but nevertheless, it looks pretty bad for Kaspersky. But I'll bet <laughs> I bet a lot of other providers are doing similar things. So we'll see what other articles come out. Now, this leads into another story, however, uh, since we're talking about these root certificates, about uh, some really shady stuff going on in Kazakhstan. And while you might think, okay, Kazakhstan, I don't care. What you need to pay attention to here is that this could be what ends up happening to us with the intelligence agencies uh, and law enforcement agencies complaining that we they can't see into all this encrypted traffic. This is a way that Kazakhstan government worked around that. Uh, and I'll, get, I'll let me read the article and then you'll you'll, you'll see uh, what the implications of that is. And this is, of course, this is from the EFF. A really good article from the EFF about this, and I just took bits and pieces of it, but let me read this part of this article from the EFF. Back in July, Kazakh Telecom, Kazakhstan's state telecommunications operator, began regularly intercepting encrypted web traffic, that is, HTTPS connections. Usually, this kind of attack on encrypted HTTPS connections is detectable and leads to a loud and visible browser warning or safeguards that prevent users from continuing. And you may have seen this, by the way, uh, if you're browsing around, sometimes your browser may pop up a thing saying, I don't, this site certificate looks funny. Uh, you shouldn't trust this site. And you have to go through a couple hoops to even proceed. And that they're trying to protect you. This is basically them saying, hey, this doesn't look right. This certificate that is, let's say you're going to Facebook, but the cer certificate that is authorizing this encrypted connection isn't Facebook's certificate. It's somebody else's certificate. Are you sure you want to do this? Um, that's the, the kind of warning you would have seen. So back to the article, it says, 
These security measures work because the certificate used is not trusted by user devices or browsers. However, Kazakh ISPs, or Internet Service Providers, also sent instructions telling users to compromise their own security by manually trusting the certificate on their devices and browsers, bypassing the security checks that are built into most devices. The two-step of Kazakh ISPs deploying an untrusted certificates and usually users manually trusting that certificate allows the ISPs to read and even alter the online communication of any of their users, including, including sensitive user data, messages, emails, and passwords sent over the web. Research and monitoring from Censored Planet found that Around 40 domains that were being regularly intercepted, including Google services, Facebook services, Twitter, and VK, which is, I guess, a Russian social media site. Yesterday, Google Chrome, Mozilla Firefox, and Apple's Safari browsers started blocking a security certificate previously used by Kazakh ISPs to compromise their users' security and perform dragnet surveillance. We encourage other browsers to take similar security measures. Since the fix has been implemented upstream in Chromium, it shouldn't take long for other Chromium-based browsers like Brave, Opera, and Microsoft's Edge to do the same. Earlier this month, Kazakhstan's National Security Committee stated that Kazakhstan had halted the program. The announcement, along with a tweet from the president of Kazakhstan, called the program a successful pilot. This step by Google, Mozilla, and Apple to block the particular certificate that Kazakh ISPs used for traffic interception prevents the government of Kazakhstan from resuming this invasive program, as well as setting a precedent such that browsers may take similar actions against network attacks of this nature in the future. Without strong pushback, it's likely that Kazakhstan or other states, in other words, like us, might try to repeat their quote-unquote pilot so we, are, we also encourage browser vendors, device manufacturers, and other systems to improve the warnings and tighten the flow around manually trusting new certificates. Yes, so this has been a pet peeve of mine for a long time. Um, I've actually, there's a, the, we've had um, Patrick Wardle on the show before. He runs a software shop for Macs called Objective-C, which creates some really, really cool uh, debugging and security tools for the Mac that are all free. Uh, so that's Objective C, uh, S E E. Uh, check that website out. It's got some really cool tools. I've actually almost begged him to create another tool that that helps you manage and protect your local certificate store. It's crucial. Uh, it's the underpinnings of every encrypted connection that your computer makes, and we count on those encrypted connections to protect us and keep our data private. In this case, what Kazakhstan did is what Kaspersky did, except that it basically kind of forced it on all their users. Now, I'm not sure how far this actually rolled out. I'm not sure if the force was truly a force. Like, I mean, you know, like install this or else we're going to block you from getting on the Internet. I don't know that it was really like that, but it sure could have been that way. And there was some step where you had to accede to this request. You basically had to manually trust Kazakhstan's special certificate. And once you do that, you're basically allowing the Kazakhstan government to do what Kaspersky did, which is to see all of your encrypted web traffic and not only see it, but as this article says, it could actually have altered it. Actually, Kaspersky did that too. It altered the content too, to add its special little, you know, web link verification code uh, that told you whether certain links are good or bad before you clicked on them. That was they were doing that to benefit you. <laughs> In the process, they also allowed other people to track you. Uh, but what Kazakhstan was doing here was they basically wanted to see everything you were doing. So it's basically like here, install this camera, you know, on your forehead, so that I can see everything you do everywhere you go. So 
the moral of the story here is that the big browser vendors, uh, Chrome, Google's Chrome and Apple's Safari and Mozilla's Firefox all said, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> we are not going to let you do that. And they put in special stuff in their browsers that looked for and rejected any any sort of encrypted communications that was vouched for by this horrible Kazakhstan certificate and warned the users. So thank God they did that. Uh, and as EFF says, we're kind of, we're basically kind of counting on the browser vendors to have our backs. And it was really good to see them do this. And, you know, we can only hope that that check on this behavior will be good enough to prevent our governments from trying the same thing. Because honestly, I think that is a way they could go. And I just hope it never comes to that. All right, so that's the news I wanted to cover uh, and tip of the week. Um, we've talked about VPNs before, virtual private networks, uh, and to get a VPN, you generally have to pay for some service, a VPN provider service. And uh, we've talked about that in the past. I've even given you some recommendations, uh, but I've got some new info here that I really want to pass along. So first, let's you know do a little bit quick of a recap of of why we even need this and what they're, what they do. So, you know, when we search, when we surf the web, as we've seen today, and in many of my previous shows, there are just, there are a gazillion ways that our movements can be tracked. And I've tried to give you as many tools and techniques as possible to help curb as much of that as we can. You know, luckily with the recent widespread adoption of HTTPS, it wasn't as widespread as it was. I mean, I, I think it was maybe, I don't know, 15 or 20% of websites were using HTTPS before then it was just HTTP, no S, no secure. Some recent advances and projects from Google and others have made getting your root certificate or not, you're getting your certificate free. It used to cost money, which is why a lot of sites didn't bother doing it, but now it's free to get a basic level certificate for your website. Uh, and now that means that all these other uh, websites that were kind of resisting it before can say, yeah, it's free. Why not? Um, and so now I think it's upwards of 80% of our, of the main websites are protected with HTTPS, which is great. Um, so anyway, thanks to that, uh, most of the communications we have is now secret. Um, now, of course, the metadata is not for the most part. In other words, what site you go to or how long you stay on that site, uh, in what order you go to different websites, all that is still kind of visible if you're in the right place, which I'm about to talk about. Um, but at least the communications with that site, once you get there are private. So, you know, metadata is important too. So if you're going to a porn site, I still know you're going to a porn site. I may not be able to know what types of porn you're looking at, but I know you're going to a porn site, or I know you're going to a political activism site, or I know you're going to shop at certain places or that kind of thing. You know, that metadata can be extremely revealing. Um, nevertheless, it's good that at least most of the contents now are, are private. So we've talked about tracking cookies and fingerprinting and Google's Chrome browser and all these other things that could be spying on you. But one of the spies that, you know, we don't talk about often and people probably don't consider is their internet service provider or their ISP. And when you're on a smartphone, of course, your ISP is your cellular provider like Verizon or AT&T. And, and at home, it's, you know, Comcast and Charter and um, some of those, uh, those other internet service providers. Those people kind of like the Kazakhstan government and Kaspers uh, you know, Kaspersky in the previous discussions are kind of a man in the middle there. They are in a privileged position because they are giving you access to the internet Everything you do on the internet has to go through them. And therefore, 
they see everything you do. Now, again, if, if your communications are secure, they can't see the contents of that descriptions, but they can still see all the websites you go to and when you're doing it and how long you're there and all those other kind of metadata type things. Uh, you know, we don't often think about this, but that's, it's true. <laughs> so how, you know, how do you protect yourself against that? Well, VPN is one way. And we're going to talk about that in a second. Um, the other thing I want to bring up, though, it's not just your ISP, but whenever you're using a public uh, internet spot, a Wi-Fi hotspot, um, your, you know, a Wi-Fi at the airport, or even a wired connection if you're in a hotel, those the Wi-Fi providers and the hotel network providers are basically your ISP. Um, they are a temporary ISP for you. They're your internet service provider. They're giving you access to the internet. And because, again, they're in that privileged position, they're between you and the internet, they see everything you do. The other thing to realize, we've talked a lot about web browsing here, but the other thing you need to realize is that there are several applications on your computer and your smartphone that are connecting to sites constantly in the background. Um, so it's not just about your web browsing. Um, these, you know, these apps are, you know, they're checking for new mail or new Facebook posts, or maybe they're checking for software updates, or they're sending usage data or error reports. Um, maybe they're receiving notifications. They're doing all these apps that you have on your phone and your computer. Everything's connected to the internet now. And as long as these apps are running, uh, they are chatting with some server or servers out on the internet. And we don't know, and it's not terribly obvious, whether all these connections that they're making are even encrypted. And they may not be, and there's certainly been a lot of cases recently where they're not. So, your computer, your phone, uh, they're chatterboxes. <laughs> and, and they are constantly accessing the internet. And so, if whoever is in that, sitting in that privileged position between you and the internet can see all that traffic. Now, some of that traffic may be encrypted, but not all of it may be. And certainly, and still where you're connecting to by definition is not private. So what do you do? How do you protect uh, all this info from prying eyes? Well, what you do is you use a VPN or a virtual private network. Uh, so a virtual private network is is like a tunnel. And in fact, that's a very common term for creating a VPN connection is creating a VPN tunnel. Um, the idea being that you're kind of, you're creating this opaque conduit uh, between you and your VPN service provider and everything that goes through that conduit, that pipe, that tunnel, that encrypted connection mechanism is invisible or unviewable, opaque to any computer or system outside that tunnel. Think of it this way. Uh, I've talked about VPNs before. So let's say from your, from the basement in your house, you have a tunnel that goes two blocks over and comes up in a little stand of woods somewhere else. If somebody were watching your house, look, trying to see when you come and go, if you went in and out through the tunnel or I brought friends in and out through the tunnel, they would never be able to see that. Um, however, just like this, analogy, VPN provider tunnels only go so far. Uh, this tunnel under your house only goes a couple blocks away. So if for some reason, somebody knew <laughs> that you had a tunnel and that's where it came out. They could then watch the exit of the tunnel, right? Um, it's a little hard to do that in practical terms on the internet, of course. Uh, and that's what VPN, that's what VPN providers do. So it creates this opaque conduit between your computer or your smartphone or if you set it up on your router, your entire house and the VPN service provider, and then your traffic, let's say you're going to amazon.com and you type in amazon.com hit return. Uh, that request first goes to the VPN provider server. 
surreptitiously, unviewable. Nobody, nobody can see even that you're going there. And emerges from the VPN's, uh, VPN provider's server, whatever you connect it to. And there's usually many, many of these servers. You usually connect geographically to one that's close to you for speed purposes. Your traffic then emerges on the internet from that provider. And as far as Amazon is concerned, it looks like you're coming from the VPN provider. Your return IP address for all traffic that goes back to you first goes to the VPN provider and then comes back through the tunnel to you. So um, I hope that wasn't too complicated, but that's basically what a VPN does. Now, if you're, <laughs> if you're paying really close attention, what you realize here is what you're really doing in this case is you're now changing the trust you have or the mistrust you have in your ISP or your local Wi-Fi hotspot provider for your VPN provider. Because now your VPN provider is now privy. They're now the one that is in that privileged position of seeing all your internet traffic. Now, of course, private is right in the name, right? So you'd hope that any VPN provider would be protecting your privacy, but that is not the case. Unfortunately, especially the free ones, they have to make money somehow. And what a lot of these VPN providers are doing, of course, is just turn, doing the same thing your ISP is doing, and that is collecting the state and selling it. So what are you to do? <laughs> who, who can you trust? Well, choosing a, v a VPN provider is very, very difficult. I've looked at many, many different reviews over the years. Uh, I've tried to stay on top of it. Some do come and go. Um, providers add new features, new security and privacy features all the time. And so, you know, I've tried to stay on top of this in order to make these recommendations uh, in the book and here on the blog and the blog and on the podcast. And it's hard to do. But there was recently a, a new, really, really thorough and exhaustive review of VPN providers uh, that just came out by a website that I really like called The Wire Cutter. Um, I like them because they're really good if, if you just want to find um, the best of something, you know, the best portable Bluetooth speaker, the best backpack, the best kitchen knife. Um, they've really evolved into this really big ratings. Uh, well, it's not, even, it's not really a rating site. It's a review site. They actually get experts to review these products and write them up. They finally got someone to do a VPN review, and it's really, really extensive. And the real killer thing about this review over all the other ones I've seen in the past is that it focuses first on privacy. And you'd think for VPN, that would be the thing, but for a lot of people, it's not. For a lot of people, you know, a lot of the other reviews focus on things like connection speed, um, how many servers they have, what the cost is, you know, practical matters to be sure, and things to consider. But this one focused first on privacy. And what, what that really meant was, and they looked at like 50 different top VPN, over 50 top VPN providers. Uh, when they focused on privacy is they found that some VPN providers have really gone above and beyond the call of duty to prove that they are private. And how do they do that? Well, for example, um, a lot of VPN providers will claim that they don't have any logging, which means that if you know, the police or hackers or you know, uh, intelligence agencies come knocking on their door and say, okay, I want to know every place Kerry went on the internet. Because I know he used you for a VPN provider, which means you know. So I need you to tell me everything you know about Carrie. And they can, if they don't have any logs, they'll turn around and say, uh, here's what we have, and their hands will be empty. On purpose. Like <laughs> That would be the point. Is they, they legally probably do have to turn over everything they have, but if they don't have anything, then there's nothing to give. So a lot of VPN providers, of course, will claim that they don't do any logging or do very, very minimal logging. But how would you know? Uh, you know, as a, as a consumer, you can't go and review what they're doing. And if, even if you did, as if you're not an expert, how would you really know what they were doing? 
right? So, so, so to answer that question for people, these companies that have gone above and beyond have hired third-party independent companies to come in and audit them. Um, in some cases, several companies to prove that what they're claiming they're doing, they are actually doing. Along with that, of course, is being transparent. I mean, so some of the VPN providers just kind of take it for granted that, hey, you're buying a VPN service. So, you know, we're probably private, uh, you know, but don't really you know, go into great detail on how private are they. Uh, some of these other companies are always are making very clear and concise and uh, easy to understand statements about what they do and don't do. And that's important, too, because not everybody does that. So anyway, what I really liked about this review, and it was really, really thorough, uh, is that they took privacy first. And because of that, actually a couple of very popular providers, including two that I've recommended uh, for a long time, didn't make the cut. And that is ExpressVPN and NordVPN. They have a lot of good things going for them. But basically, there were other companies that had all the same things going for them, but took that extra step of doing these third-party independent audits and publishing them on a periodic basis. Um, you know, that gives them a leg up in, in this view. Uh, when you're focusing on privacy first, that makes them better. So, in fact, this, uh, the reviewer for this basically ruled out immediately any company that that wasn't, at least from being a top pick, ruled out any company that didn't have these third-party audits. So who's the winner? Well, the big winner is Tunnel Bear, um, which I have recommended in the past as well. But I guess Tunnel Bear has really, really upped their game and and done all these third-party audits and made the public. And uh, they've gotten audits from respected auditors. And at the end of the day, it, it, including all these other factors I was talking about earlier, you know, relative cost, speed, number of VPN server locations, and all these kind of things that do have practical matters, they came out on top. So... Anyway, I encourage you to read it. I actually have a blog article. Probably the easiest way to, to get that is to go to my website, Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. And I've got a uh, probably the top entry right now uh, is how to choose a VPN provider. And I kind of walk through the same things I just walked through here, um, but I have some other interesting links in there that you might uh, find um, in, you know, informational uh, for background uh, if I kind of went too fast or kind of went over your head on some of this stuff. And then, of course, the link to the Wirecutter article. And that's a long article, uh, but if you really, really want to understand, you know, VPNs and why they're important and what matters in terms of privacy, uh, it's a really good article to read. So anyway, very impressed. And I thought I wanted to make a, a point to bring that up here and recommend everybody that they should have a VPN the, um, and I would pay for it. Tunnel Bear is not that expensive. I think it's 50 bucks a year. I'm trying it right now. I'm trialing it out myself, but I think I'm going to go ahead and sign up for a year myself. Uh, the other thing this article did talk about, which I'll mention, is there are a lot of interesting things on the horizon. Again, I've talked about that Warp VPN from Cloudflare that has yet to show up. Uh, and when it starts, it's going to be mobile phone only, so it's still not going to cover your computer. Uh, and there's some other technologies coming up, but you know they're all kind of new and untrusted, so we're going to have to give them time anyway. So my personal advice is just go to Tunnel Bear, get, get it for a year, and then at the end of that year, probably go back to Wirecutter uh, and see if they've updated their their information. And at that point, you could decide whether you want to keep them or try something different. Okay, we had a lot to talk about today. Actually, not a lot of topics, but a lot of depth that I wanted to get into on some of those subjects. So 
Thanks for hanging with me. I hope you learned something really good today. Hopefully several things. Um, I've got some interviews already in the can that I, that are going to be coming out soon. Both of them have to do with different aspects of facial recognition technology. And this is something, uh, that I've been wanting to talk about for a long time. And I've been trying to, I've been bugging, <laughs> bugging several people, uh, to come on the show and interview and then nothing, nothing, nothing. And then all of a sudden I got two. So one of them, the first one is from, uh, Epic, the, uh, Electronic Privacy and Information Center. I've been trying to get somebody from there for a long time to come on the show. So I'm very happy that I finally made a connection there. And he's going to come on and talk about the Amazon Ring doorbell. And of course, it used to be Amazon. Amazon bought the company. Uh, I own one of these. Uh, they've definitely got some merit, and I think they're cool. But the relationship that Amazon is cultivating with local law enforcement, uh, in other words, police departments, is kind of creepy. <laughs> it's, it's beyond creepy. So we're going to talk about that and that'll be next week. That'll be next week's show. Then we'll do another new show and then we'll have probably a two-parter because it was a long interview. We'll have a two-part interview with somebody from EFF about kind of more general facial recognition te- technology use in the United States, what's going on in other places around the country and talk about, you know, uh, some of the same policy issues, but get a different perspective. That new show coming up, uh, depend, unless something else hot comes up between now and then, uh, one of the th- things I was going to talk about today, and I just realized it's, I could do a whole show on this, is browser privacy, in particular, Google's Chrome, uh, or lack of privacy thereof. Uh, they've recently made some interesting announcements about changes they're going to do in Chrome, which they say are all about user privacy. However, while there's a couple good things in there, there's definitely some bad things, and there's definitely some ugly things in there, too. So... Uh, there's a really long article on this that I'm going to kind of walk through because it, and it covers so many different topics and I think they're all important, uh, that it, that's just going to be a whole show. So, uh, if uh, I'm hoping to do that on the next news show, uh, unless something big comes up between now and then that I have to talk about. Uh, so look forward to that. Uh, that'll be coming at some point soon. All right. That's enough for today. Uh, thanks everybody for listening. Uh, subscribe if you haven't give it a review if you don't mind. And, uh, until next week, stay safe and don't get caught with your drawbridge down.